0: Well, if you have your uh, Bibles with you or are they on your uh, device, I would encourage you to take them and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34 today. And again, I'm not going to read all of them, and we will be looking at selected uh, verses from uh, this passage. but the whole the overall theme of this section of the sermon on the mount that we want to look at is what do we do with ambition what do we do with the the drivenness that we often experience in 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 our lives in keeping with the teachings of jesus so we're going to dive into that uh here today pray with me father as we look now into your word we thank you for it we thank you that uh, it continues to speak to us today and so we ask that you would help us holy spirit to Gain from this text this morning, these words of Jesus that we're going to be looking at, what it is that you want us to learn, how you want to teach us, how you want it to impact us and and enable us to live out the kingdom values of God. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the assignments in a leadership development course that I took at seminary was to complete a profile that would would outline what my style of, of influence is. And I discovered from this profile that my influence pattern type is identified as a charger. Now, among other things, chargers want results. They're most satisfied when a job is done accurately and on time. And so when I saw the results, a lot of things started to come together for me in my own self-awareness. Instances of when I demonstrated this element of my personality came to mind. Some not so good, in fact. But I was caused to think of the number of times, for instance, that I had charged on ahead of my wife as we were walking together. She got to the place where she started to stop to see just how far I would get before I realized that she was no longer with me. I, I think I got about a block away at the most, but then again I might have selective memory in that. Uh. Then I recalled my, my conversation with our to-be son-in-law when he asked if he could marry our daughter. I knew what he had in mind when he asked me if... We could catch breakfast together, but I had a number of things to get done that day, and he was taking far too long. So I finally interjected, So Sean, was there anything in particular you wanted to ask me? Later I discovered that our oldest son had forewarned Sean that I wouldn't wait forever for him to pop the question. And then I thought of the number of times I've caught myself racing to go somewhere, on my day off, wondering, why in the world am I in such a hurry? Not that long ago, there was a lot of talk, especially in Christian circles, about purpose-driven. This kind of talk appeals to me as a charger type, and so I bought the books and subscribed to all of the email articles on the purpose-driven life. And there's a lot of good stuff, I will admit, that has been written about this. But I've become more and more skeptical, and I kind of hope it's a holy skepticism, on the combining of purposefulness with drivenness. You see, a few years ago, my pursuit of purposefulness got all tangled up in my drivenness, and I had an emotional spin-out that sidelined me for a while. Mark Buchanan observes, Drivenness may awaken or be a catalyst for purpose, but it rarely fulfills it. It more often jettisons it. A common characteristic of driven people is that at some point they forget the purpose. Drivenness erodes purposefulness. Therefore, it may be better to separate being driven from any talk of purposeful living. And I think one way to do this is to come to an understanding of what we do with ambition. Now, in the section of Jesus talk on the hillside that we will be looking at today Jesus helps us find our way in identifying ambition that will lead to purposeful living he does so by pointing out the differences between being driven by material pursuits and living from an eternal perspective how we handle the clash between earthly and heavenly treasure between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, between worldly and godly values, and between material and spiritual success will determine whether or not we pursue ambition that reflects God's perspective. And so Jesus speaks to ambition that brings freedom over that which enslaves. Now the issue at stake here is not whether or not we have ambition, but what, what kind of ambition we have or how our ambition leads us? Does it lead us to God or does it lead us away from him? Does it lead to the building up of our personal kingdoms or the advancement of God's kingdom? Jesus boils all of this down to a matter of priorities when he said, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Ambition that is uncorrupted involves another kingdom, God's kingdom. Jesus points out that pure ambition is determined, first of all, by what we treasure. John Maxwell tells the story of a man who was honored as his city's leading citizen. Called on to tell the story of his life, he said, Friends and neighbors, when I first came here 30 years ago, I walked into your town on a muddy dirt road with only the suit on my back, the shoes on my feet, and all of my earthly possessions wrapped up in a red bandana tied on a stick, which I carried over my shoulder. Today I'm the chairman of the board of the bank. I own hotels, apartment buildings, office buildings, three companies with branches in 49 cities, and I'm on the boards of all the leading clubs. Yes, friend, your city has been very, very good to me. Well, after the banquet, a young businessman approached the honored guest and asked him, Sir, would you tell me what you had wrapped in that red bandana that you walked into town with with 30 years ago? The man replied, Well, as I recall, it was about a half a million dollars in cash and $900,000 in government bonds. In many ways, the ambitions we pursue in life are shaped by what treasures we carry about in our red bandanas. To invest your life wisely, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus' counsel to us is this, don't fill up your red bandanas with treasures linked to this world because they are insecure. There is a good possibility that a moth could eat a hole in your red bandana and all of your treasure leak out as you walk down life's road. Or you may be attacked by a group of thugs who steal your red bandana away. Away. Then where will you be? Rather, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there are no moths or thieves or rust-inducing humility. <clears throat> there your investment will be secure and will lead to honorable recognition as a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not speaking against having earthly possessions, nor is he suggesting that if our earthly goods are going to depreciate and decay anyways, then why bother looking after them? So accumulation of, of things or the adoption of a careless attitude towards what we have is not the issue here. Jesus again points to the heart as being the critical factor in the consideration of what we choose to treasure when he said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we are to store up treasure, and Jesus assumes that we will, then set your heart on treasure that will last. Buy up securities that will bring about eternal dividends. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what those things look like or are. But it is safe to conclude that he is instructing us to invest the contents of our red bandanas in a way that will advance God's kingdom and accomplish God's will on earth and not our own. He is telling us to invest our time and money in acts of love and kindness to promote justice and to meet the needs of the poor. These are wise investments because they are secured by God in heaven where they will be kept safe until Jesus returns to bring his followers into their eternal reward. So be careful what we treasure. Jesus then goes on to point out what that pure ambition is determined by what we look at. The eye, of, the eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, the Old Testament on numerous occasions connects, makes a connection between the eye and the heart. In Psalm 119.10, David states, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. And then he goes on a few verses later in verse 18 and says, Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your life. And Solomon declares in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. And then a couple of verses later, he indicates that one way to guard your hearts is to let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you. Jesus now indicates that the eyes become the entrance point for good and bad to come into the body, essentially the heart. Fix your eyes on what is good and the light of God's truth will flood your whole being. Fix your sight on what is evil, and your life will become filled with irrepressible darkness. The story is told of two prisoners in one small cell with no light that came into the cell except through a tiny window about a meter above eye level. Both prisoners spent a great deal of time, as one would suspect, looking at that window. One of them saw the bars, those ugly reminders of of reality. And from day to day, he grew increasingly discouraged, bitter, angry, and hopeless. By contrast, the other prisoner looked through the window to see the stars beyond, and hope welled up in that prisoner as he began to think of the possibility of starting a new life over again in freedom. The prisoners were looking at the same window, but one saw the bars while the other saw the stars. The difference in their vision made a huge impact on their lives. Visionary people have a way of looking beyond the obvious to see a preferred future. The preferred future that Jesus spoke about is a life filled with the light of God's truth. It is catching a glimpse of what God is up to and giving yourself passionately to doing His work in His way for His glory. All personal ambition has been acknowledged for what it is, a journey into the darkness of greed, self-centeredness, bitterness, hatred, and arrogance. Jesus is telling you to get an eye for God's purpose for your life and see if that doesn't stir up some enthusiasm in how you live out your days. Ambition that leads to enlightened decision-making is all a matter of what you look at. Well, as Jesus continues on in his instruction, he identifies pure ambition as being determined by what we value. No one can serve two masters, he says. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this hard and fast rule of not being able to serve two masters is put forward by Jesus, is argued to be too extreme by some. They see themselves as being able to balance the apparent conflict between living out God's values and still retaining a measure of worldliness and worldly pursuits. And so on weekends, they come to church, they join in the worship experience, they act religious. But on Monday, it is back into the hectic routine of trying to keep the boss happy or get the kids to music lessons or make the hockey team or get that cute guy's attention. The connection is never made between living out God's values in front of their church-going friends and the crowd they hang out with the rest of the week. Jesus says that trying to live your life with your feet firmly planted in both value systems, God's and the world's, is not going to work. Notice his use of can and cannot. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. To try to do so is to make your choice against God. Jesus is talking about a a leader-follower bond, and followers can only have one leader. And so Jesus throws down the gauntlet and says, you must choose. You can't have it both ways. You either choose to go God's way and give over to Him the authority to lead you in all you do, or you choose to go it on your own, calling your own shots and turning your back on God. You can do either because the choice is yours. But Jesus tells you that there is consequences to the way in which you choose. Now it's important for us to notice the way in which Jesus begins the next section of his talk in the Sermon on the Mount at verse 25 of Matthew, chapter 6. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. For those who choose God as the leader and provider of their lives, Jesus sets out the way to worry-free living. They will find security now and for all eternity. And again, it boils down to a choice. This time, it is a choice between fear and faith. Ambition that keeps a God-focused outlook is determined by what success looks like to us. So here's my attempt to spell out success as I see Jesus defining it. First of all, settle important matters first. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? As we begin each and every day, we find ourselves confronted by what one author has stated as the tyranny of the urgent. So many pressing issues call for our attention as we start the day. Jesus identifies them as food and clothing, but they could just as easily be work or travel or stock market quotes or computer searches. Anything that distracts us from acknowledging God's place in our daily pursuits. Nothing is more important than settling each and every day whose lead you are going to follow. God's or the cares of this life. I can think of no better way of addressing this matter than to find that secret place with God that we spoke about last week. Next, understand your limits. Jesus asks this penetrating question, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? The point Jesus makes here is that worry accomplishes absolutely nothing when it it comes to successful living. Worry won't change a thing, except perhaps your stress level and your blood pressure. Successful people in God's kingdom accept the gift of limits. They joyfully receive the provisions God has given to them, materially, physically, intellectually, and socially, and as a result, they are not hassled with covetousness and trying to live a life that God never intended for them to live. They are characterized by peace and contentment, having learned the secret, as the Apostle Paul says, of being satisfied in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Then consider God's resources. To help us stop our fussing, Jesus instructs us to look at how God provides for the needs of creatures and plants. By pointing to God's care of birds and flowers, Jesus draws attention to the daily provision of the Creator for the well-being and sustenance of the created. He points out that, that even Solomon, with his proverbial success story, is no comparison to the beauty that God has unleashed in His creation. The same beauty God has promised to bring into the lives of all who trust Him. And so rest assured, you are infinitely more important than birds and flowers. And God has committed himself to make something beautiful of your life. Next, choose to believe. The breakdown to every success story in becoming all that God intends us to be is lack of faith. Jesus makes this telling statement of his followers. Oh, you of little faith. Notice he didn't criticize them for absence of faith, but for deficiency of faith. They had enough faith to experience the reality of God's presence with them, but they lacked the depth of faith that would give them the power to overcome their anxieties and fear for living out well. And as I reflected on this, most of the time, if I'm really honest with you, I, I find myself living in the you of little faith category. What I'm coming to understand is that by embracing this attitude, I'm really saying that I, I don't really trust that God is going to come through for me. And so I'm asking God to help me with my unbelief, to push me outside of my comfort zones, to call to me to get out of the boat and come to Him walking on the water, to take the risk that He is able and willing to keep me from falling and bring me into the fullest provision of His boundless possibilities. I'm learning to expect God's provision. If we are serious about taking God at his word and moving forward in the fullness of faith, Jesus tells us that we can be sure that your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. God is not going to leave us shortchanged when we step out in faith. He knows our needs and he has the resources to meet them. When we commit ourselves to doing God's work in God's ways, we will never lack God's resources. Then surrender to God's will, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. John Maxwell observes, you will never succeed beyond the purpose to which you are willing to surrender. The secret to the surrendered life is giving God the first portion of your income, the first consideration in every decision, and first place in your life. When we surrender to him, then we find the purpose that really caps off the meaning of success. Surrender is what brings purposefulness. When we are driven by purpose, we lose it. When we surrender, we find it. And then the kind of success which Jesus is talking about leads to a secure future. Much of our worry over failing to succeed is caused by what Tim Saunders calls the scarcity mentality. The scarcity mentality thinks that there is not enough to go around. So if I don't want to miss out on the good things of life, I must complain, control, compete, and compromise in order to get my needs met. This scarcity mentality took on a bit of an ironic twist on December 19, 1973, when Johnny Carson made a wisecrack on The Tonight Show that that nearly caused a national crisis in the States. Earlier that day, Congressman Harold Froehlich from Wisconsin had warned that if the federal bureaucracy didn't get its act together soon and catch up on its supply bids, government agencies would run out of toilet paper. That night, Carson joked at the beginning of his show, there's an acute shortage of toilet paper in the United States. He followed this with his trademark swing at an imaginary golf ball and went to commercial break and then on to the show. Not so the nation. 20 million viewers flew into panic. The next morning, Americans by the hundreds of thousands lined up outside supermarkets in a bid to stockpile supplies of toilet paper. There were brawls in the aisles, pushing and shoving at the checkout stands. One store manager tried to limit the supply to four rolls per customer, but had no way of monitoring how many times customers entered the store. By noon on December 20, a matter of hours after Carson's flippant remark, America was sold out of toilet paper. (laughs) We are all gullible to news about scarcity. Tim Saunders traces this skittishness back to Genesis 47 when Pharaoh ordered the stockpiling of grain in anticipation of seven years of famine. I would trace it back even further, back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve realized there there was a shortfall in their clothes closet and went looking for items of covering that they had never had to worry about before. And ever since that time, we have been gripped by the mentality of scarcity. Jesus teaches that those who embrace God's kingdom values never need to be sucked into a scarcity mentality. God has given us enough time, enough money, enough skills and capacity to accomplish what he intends for us to do. From the abundant supply of his resources, he will keep our supply lines well-stocked in this life, and more importantly, throughout all eternity. So don't let anyone's cruel joke about scarcity cause you to think otherwise. So what then does Jesus say about ambition? He lays down the challenge that if you want to be ambitious, and he acknowledges that God has created you to have ambitions... Don't be satisfied with small-minded pursuits that lead to rusty treasure or limited vision or unworthy values or unprofitable success. Ambition from a godly perspective means pursuing treasure that will not perish catching a vision of what God is up to in the world and intentionally following after Him, embracing values that reflect God's worth and striving for success that advances God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Ambitions based on these pursuits can never be modest. Choose this way and your life will be radically transformed for now and all eternity. And you can be sure that God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what next? How do we take this into the crowd, into our everyday experiences beyond this environment? Well, let me ask you these questions. Where do you find yourself embracing God's kingdom values as outlined by Jesus? And where is there a disconnect? If you were to ask your neighbors to assess where you place your values, what do you think they would say? Let's pray. And now, Father, as we have wrestled with these words of Jesus, they call us to a totally different space of thinking because they are radical. They go against everything that this world values. They go against things that we often struggle with with in ourselves. We have this mindset that if we're going to be successful, it all depends upon us, and let's drive forward, and let's make it happen. And there's some truth to the reality that we have responsibility here. But, Father, I ask that you will help us to be able to discern between what we do because we are driven and what we do because we are living on purpose with you. And so we pray that you will give us wisdom and understanding there. Now stand with me as we conclude. And may this glorious, all-knowing, all-wise God help us to understand that He will provide for all of our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Take that with you and go and live on purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.